Acts 20, 17 through 24. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to, to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Hello. Good morning. Um, it is my privilege to be here. Um, as uh, was introduced, I've known uh, Johnny and Tia for uh, for a while, and through that I was introduced to uh, to Rod sometime last year, right around this time of 2013, so last year. And Rod was real instrumental in my life in terms of helping me through the things that our family was going through. And then sometime a few months ago, he invited me to the Simeon Trust Conference and told me that, hey, if you're still here in the area, we'd love to have you preach. And I'm looking at him and thinking, I'd love to, love to be with your congregation, meet your congregation for the first time, and I would love to share the Word of God with them. And so as I was preparing for this morning, uh, decided to go through my normal routine, open up the Bible, go through whatever I was going through in my quiet time, see what the Lord had to say to me before coming to this Sunday service and preaching to you all. And I just happened to be in Numbers three where the word said that Nadab and Habihu died because they offered strange fire and the Lord slayed them. And so I guess that reminded me of the sanctity of this Sunday service. It reminded me of the sanctity of the people who are here and the sanctity of, of the task of proclaiming God's word to you in its purity without any adultery. And so it is my pleasure. It's also a very fearful kind of a privilege for me to be up here. Uh, I've never met the body except for Rod and a few others who are in this congregation. But I do know from what the Bible says that this is a sanctified people. God sets you apart to hear the word this morning. And he set apart this particular text to bring to you. And it, it's my hope. It's my joy. It's a privilege to bring what God has set apart for you that he's brought you here for this morning. And so with that, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the work that you do in us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We're thankful that we have hearts that are softened, that you've opened up, that the eyes of our hearts can now see the treasures and the gems in your word, that we have the will now to follow the things that you've commanded us. And so I do pray that 
you would speak to us through your word. Help me be faithful. Bless this congregation with your instruction, with your revelation. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, who died for us, who rose again for us, and who intercedes for us this very hour that we pray. Amen. Just as a little bit of background, I was born in the Philippines. I grew up in Hawaii, moved to L.A. for a few years, went to high school in Las Vegas, went to college in San Diego, and it's just recently that we moved to Silicon Valley. So I'm not familiar with Silicon Valley. I'm not familiar with the people of Silicon Valley. We currently live in Mountain View, which is Google Town. And living in Silicon Valley meant that for the first time, uh, I had to get over the fact that I'm not a fan of technology. I'm not a fan of all these upgrades and all the things that are going on. And I just had to accept that this was the route that God was taking us, that for at least a season that I'm in, this part of the world, I'm going to have to get used to the fact that as a teacher right now, I'm currently teaching high school, everything is on iPads. And when I was ordained a couple years ago, uh, our church members gave me a gift that I had told myself I would never get for myself. And I resisted it for the longest time. And then at the ordination service, it was presented to me and I couldn't do anything but take it. <laughs> and the gift was an iPad. And a couple months later, they gave me something else that I told myself I would never get, and it was this iPhone. <laughs> and with that, I was exposed to a world that I never wanted to get exposed to, and it's the wonderful world of apps. And so yesterday, I decided to um, do some research on what the latest apps are, what's being created, what's being designed. And there's an app apparently called 24Me, if you've heard of it, you've heard of it. If you're like me, who doesn't like it, but needed a sermon illustration for this morning, <laughs> you've heard of it. It's an app that is being developed that predicts a person's future to-do list. I'm, I make a to-do list all the time, but apparently this app studies your habits over time so that it creates a to-do list for you. And so the designer said that our vision is a single app that acts as a long-term personal assistant, the kind that intuitively knows what needs to happen next. The app is self-learning, meaning that it accurately is able to predict up-and-coming to-do tasks and improves with use as the user increases the number of sites and tools. And the, my initial thought was, this is really scary. I don't like technology. I don't like things that like to predict my future. I don't like things that predict what my to-do list is going to be. I don't like a computer telling me what to do in the first place. But the more I thought about it, and I started to wonder what kind of things would it predict to be on my to-do list. Like, would it know exactly what I needed to buy in the grocery store, what my wife needs to buy uh, at the grocery for our family? Does, would it know where I would need to go throughout the day? Is it going to map my, my normal course throughout San Jose and tell me that at 6 o'clock you need to be at this place and that place because that's what you've been doing all your life? <laughs> and... I just saw that Blue Jay up at the nursery a while ago. Um, <laughs> welcome to Sunday service. <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the app really isn't that impressive because human beings, I've realized, are fairly predictable creatures. We are creatures of habit, and we make a lot of decisions 
throughout the day, throughout the course of our lives, short-term, long-term, work, marriage, location, schooling, everything. But if you get to know someone well enough, if you spend enough time with a person, you'll realize that you're actually able to predict. And give, this is given the fact that you pay attention to how this person acts and what this person says, what this person likes. You, you, you'll realize that you will be able to predict the kind of things that they'll do and how they'll act in certain situations. And it's because uh, I realize we're not as complicated as maybe we might have made ourselves out to be. I'm not as complicated as I've made myself out to be. I know that because my closest friends can easily predict what I'm going to do next. It's the, uh, I bet JR is going to do this. And sure enough, it happens. And they told me beforehand that they made the prediction and things would actually happen. And it's because the decisions that we make are not mutually exclusive. The things that we do, the things that we say, actions that we take, decisions that we make based on whatever particular circumstance that we're in are all founded on a certain philosophy that we individually have for why we do the things that we do. How do we think of ourselves? How does a person think of himself, how he views his existence? Who is he before God, before people, and what's his role? That's an entire that's a person's entire philosophy. And those things govern a person's practice, and it's a singular philosophy. And all this to say, godly practices and godly living and all the things that are encompassed with that, the many, many things that come with Godly Christian living are all founded on a godly philosophy. And at the same time, worldly living, ungodly living, dishonoring living are all founded on a worldly philosophy. So if you get your philosophy right, if you look at yourself the correct way, if you think of yourself in the correct manner and you evaluate yourself before God and other people in the correct manner, the godly living follows. As a man thinks, so a man is. A man's worldview shapes the way he navigates through the world. At the same time, if you have an ungodly philosophy, if you don't view yourself the right way, if you don't prioritize the right things in your heart, no matter what you do and no matter what the world thinks of what you're doing, before God, you can't, you can't please him. So the question that I hope to answer, that I hope we get to an answer to by the end of the sermon is, is the philosophy that we have individually and corporately, the kind of philosophy that God is expecting for us to have that's going to produce godliness, is the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about our church, the way we think about why we're here and what God expects us to do, is our philosophy transformed? Are we transformed in the renewing of our minds so that we can discern the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect? Or are we still thinking, even though we go to church, even though we go to Bible studies, even though we read our Bibles, are we still evaluating things from a worldly philosophy? And a good way to measure this is to measure your life and your thinking process against that of this man called Paul, one of the most instrumental Christians in church history. And you see Paul's philosophy here in this verse in the book of Acts. And just to give some context, why was Acts written? It was written to show the sovereign wisdom of God in the way he established the early church in the midst of so much persecution. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades 
will not overcome it. And from that point on, Satan and the gates of Hades did everything that they could possibly do to try to take down the church and have since been trying to do that. And ever since that day in Pentecost, God has grown the church more and more and more. Believers are being made from all different parts of the world. Why is that? Because in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, and this sets the, the tone for the entire book, you will be my witnesses with the power of the Holy Spirit in Judea, in Jerusalem first, then in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So God has been on a mission since that day close to 2,000 years ago, and he has been unstoppable in that mission. And one of the key instruments and vessels that he's used is the life of a man known as Paul, who was transformed in his former way of thinking to have a certain kind of philosophy. Paul didn't start off as a believer. He persecuted the church. I don't know if any one of us can ever say that that was our past, that we spent a good portion of our adulthood training ourselves to hate Christians and going after them and persecuting them. And then in Acts 9, God took a hold of Paul's life, one of the most amazing conversions in Damascus. And then he said, he is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So on that day, God made two promises to Paul. Christ made two promises that Paul would be his instrument as a witness of the gospel, of the resurrection, and Paul would suffer greatly. After that, for the rest of Paul's life, he was testifying of the gospel. He was a witness of Jesus Christ. He goes on his first missionary journey in Acts 13, shares the gospel, plants churches, and then and in preceding Antioch, he's driven out by the Jews, his own people, gets rejected by his own people, just like his Savior was. And then in and then he was stoned and managed to live. I don't know how, he, did they miss, did they miss the, that part of his head? He managed to live through the stoning and went back to that same city and preached the gospel again. And then he went back to Antioch, went back in the second missionary journey right when he was about to leave. His closest partner and ministry partner, Barnabas, split with him over a disagreement over John Mark. And so Paul goes on with Silas, takes Timothy with him. And then at Philippi, as he's preaching the gospel, Paul and Silas are dragged out into the marketplace. They're arrested. They're beaten with rods. Their clothes are ripped off. They're imprisoned. Their feet are fastened to the stocks, rescued by God through an earthquake, and then decides to go back on a third missionary journey to strengthen the churches that he had previously planted and to go to Asia. And during that third missionary journey, yes, he experienced persecution, but it was relatively less. Didn't get stoned, didn't get beaten, didn't get thrown in a prison. His ministry in Ephesus and Asia was thriving. The word of God was multiplying. It says in Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord was growing and mightily prevailing. So God was blessing Paul's ministry in his third journey. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 19, verse 21, Paul purposed through the Spirit's moving to go to Jerusalem. Sounds a lot like Jesus. So up to this point, you're looking at Paul and he's, he is the missionary of missionaries. Unbelievable. And there were no airplanes at the time. So I don't know how they managed to, he managed to travel to all those different places, but he did. He was faithful. He testified of the gospel everywhere 
and he suffered greatly just like Jesus said he would. He poured out his heart in his third missionary journey to the Ephesian church. And then in Acts 20, 22, as was read, Paul says, Now behold, bound by the Spirit. In other words, I'm absolutely imprisoned to the will of God as revealed by the Holy Spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. In other words, Paul is going to a place that God has said, you will, you will get imprisoned and you are going to suffer again. The, and I'm thinking, because we've been, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through the church candidating processes, ministry candidating processes, and we've looked at the website, we've looked at the job descriptions, we've looked at the church size, and obviously as, as a former pastor looking to get into a new ministry, which we're about to get into pretty soon, we're looking for a congregation that, well, not too big, not too small, where the people would probably like us, where we would probably have enough of a salary not to be a bivocational worker for the rest of our lives. I have never said yes, well, I've never seen a job description that promised me that I was going to go to jail after taking it. And Paul is looking at that kind of a job description that God gave him, and it says, you are going to go to jail, and you are going to suffer. And I'm thinking, I would, if I looked at that, even as a pastor who's, who's given my life to the work of ministry, why would I want to do that? And that doesn't make sense in the United States where you don't, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, you don't go to a place that promises you prison. So why in the world is Paul doing this? And he's explaining now to the Ephesian elders why he has to leave their church and go to Jerusalem and he reveals a philosophy here. And listen to his words again. And this is the philosophy that your heart needs to be transformed to individually as a church. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. There are three areas that Paul is saying, I'm transformed in. I think differently in these three areas. The first one is, is his consideration of himself. And so the, the first area that your thinking needs to be transformed in, our thinking needs to be transformed in, is the way we consider ourselves, the way we look at ourselves. And the attitude is that of self-denial. Look at 24, and Paul says, but, this is the, the biggest contrasting conjunction in this book. Because Paul is saying, I'm going to go to prison, I'm going to suffer, but let me explain. What I'm going to say is going to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing. I do not consider, I do not account of my life of any value. Literally, in absolutely no way do I consider. This is really strong language. Paul's not being extreme for the purpose of being idiomatic or being hyperbolic. He's making an extreme decision to go to Jerusalem, and so he has to reveal the very extreme, almost black and white philosophy that he has on living. Very strong language. He says, I do not consider in no way, I do not account of my life, life 
soul, literally, in the Greek, your entire existence. And Paul isn't saying just my life. He's looking at life in general. It's kind of like when we say, what's your view on money? What's your view on work? What's your view on family life? What's your view on raising kids? What's your view on buying homes? What's your perspective on how you need to purchase a car? What's your perspective on in-laws? What's your perspective on anything? And Paul is saying, this is my perspective on life, period. Not just small facets of life, but life, period. And he says, I do not account of my life in any value or as precious to myself. Translated, in absolutely no way do I consider or think of my earthly existence as precious and honorable when he says, as dear to myself, as honorable, as valuable, as precious, as respected. Another way of saying it, when it comes to obeying Jesus Christ, I have no respect for my own life and my own self-preservation and the furtherance of my own reputation. What you respect ultimately determines how you make decisions, right? As a husband, I respect my wife too much to just go out every night and hang out with my friends every night just because marriage is valuable. You respect it. You know, as a father who needs to provide for my children and it's a privilege to do so, I have enough respect for them. I value them enough just to take any job. I have to be very careful with the kind of jobs that I take. Number one, it has to be enough to support the family. Number two, it has, to be, it has to be in such a way where I can spend time with the family. And you go through all these, it, being a dad can be, and being a mom for, for that matter, can put you through so many different prisons of decision making because you're thinking about the value of your kids. All of a sudden, all these different things that you had to think through that you never had to think through before, you're having to think through. You know, I respect as a son, I have enough respect for my parents that every Christmas or Thanksgiving, we at least make an attempt to go visit them. But as a Christian, as a disciple, as someone who claims that Jesus Christ is your sole treasure in life, is there something in your life personally that you respect too much in such a way that it has prevented or is preventing you from doing what you know God wants you to do as revealed in God's word. When Paul says, there is not a single thing in my life that I consider dear to myself, what he's saying is, there is not a single thing in life, period, that ultimately belongs to you. Jesus Christ is to be first in everything. He owns everything. And you can't operate from a philosophy that says, I need to prioritize my safety and my preservation before I obey. 
Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making these claims that we have to go out and suffer now, that we have to join a Christian military and, and you know, die for the gospel. There were times where Jesus fled for safety. There were times where Paul fled for safety. And actually, right before he said this, Paul fled for safety from, from a crowd that wanted to pursue him. And so this isn't saying that there are never any instances where you have to think about your self-preservation, you have to think about the welfare of your, your existence and your family. But what this is saying and what Paul is saying is, if I had a choice between preserving my life, which is not bad, and obeying Jesus Christ and what he called me to do, and assuming that those two things can't go together for this particular path, I am not going to respect my needs. Our culture is not going to teach you this. This is only going to come from the Bible. We say, culture says, you get an education so that you can get a good job, so that you can... I asked this to a kid recently who I was tutoring. Is We're doing some SAT tutoring, and he uh, was just losing his focus, and so I finally said, hey, why are we doing this? Why, are we, why am I having you sit through a three-hour SAT tutoring session with me? And he goes, so that I can do well on the test. And I asked, which does what? so that I can get good grades, so that I can get into college. And I'm like, so what's that for? So that I can get a good job. And I'm like, so what does that do? So that I can make a lot of money. And you see the philosophy. And I said, no, the reason why I'm having you do this SAT tutoring is so that your parents stop getting on your back for scoring low, low scores. <laughs> and he goes, oh, yeah, I like that better. And the, the culture here... And everywhere, for that matter, is you have to work hard because you need to prove yourself. Make much of yourself. Bring honor to your name. It's a philosophy that prioritizes a nice life and honor and reputation before seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. That's just, that's just the way it is, and that's the culture that we're trying to strive against. I'm not saying we need to be impractical with our lives. I'm not saying we need to make a vow of poverty. That, that's not at all what the Bible says. But what it does say is, I can't in any way look at my life as worth treasuring at the expense of obeying Jesus Christ. So the question is, what does that obedience actually look like if we're supposed to be in complete self-denial like when jesus says whoever wishes to follow me and does not hate his father and mother and children and even his own life cannot be my disciple i don't know how to get around those words when i first read that as a college student when i was first saved i looked at that and i thought i do not know how to get around those words and then when he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life will save it. And it was in the back of a t-shirt that someone had given to me for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I had that t-shirt for a long time, and I would look at those words and think, I don't know how to get around this. But obedience is not an option. It's never to be prioritized underneath anything else. Christ is looking at me and commanding me to exhibit complete self-denial, absolute self-denial before him. 
And Paul says, so that, and this is the second area, this is the second philosophical area, it's in his commitment to ministry. So not just in his consideration of himself, but now his commitment to his ministry. He says, so that I may finish the course. This is why he's denying everything. This is why he says, I don't, I don't care about my life. I don't respect my life. It's because I want to finish the course. It's the same word, this word, this Greek word for finish. Same word that describes Jesus when it said that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Because he was the, not just the author, but the finisher, the completer. Same word, the completer of faith. So it's, the, it's a shade of Jesus here. It's the same word that Paul tells Timothy. Suffer hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Finish your ministry. Same word that Jesus uses in John 17 when he talks about how he completed and finished the work that the Father gave him. There is something so valuable to Paul. Something that he so badly wants to finish and, and, and end with 100% completion that is making him look at imprisonment and making him look at affliction. And when you read through the book of Acts after chapter 20 and you see the kind of things that Paul had to go through after he came to Jerusalem, it was affliction. He lost his entire, in that sense, his entire missionary career. He ended his career right there. But there was something he wanted to finish that he didn't want to leave half completed. I want to finish my course. The word here gives the picture of a race, of an athletic race, and the course that someone has to go through to finish that race back in their version of the Olympic Games. And Paul is saying, the course is set before me, and I am going to finish the whole thing. And what is this course? It's the ministry. The ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. The word ministry, the service, the task, the assignment. When a master assigns a slave a task and says, I'm giving this to you to do, and by this time, it has to be done. And Paul is saying, I was entrusted with a service. I was appointed by my boss, by my master, with an assignment that I need to finish. And it says, which I received. In other words, I didn't decide it for myself. I received it from the Lord Jesus. No hesitation here. Paul's not saying, I think he told me to do this, or I, I'm almost sure he wants me to do this. It's, I received it. And it happened in the past, and I'm doing everything I can and will do everything I can to finish it. This is, if you look at the language here, when it says, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, the Master Jesus, this is a reference to the Lordship of Christ before him. In other words, I'm not self-employed. I'm not autonomous. I didn't decide the direction of my life as I wished for myself. Ephesian elders, the reason why I'm going is because I was told to go. It happened at a definite time. And I have to do everything I can to complete it. And I am absolutely sure that I need to finish it. I'm committed to completing this race. 
If you were to ever train for any kind of a distance race, and I know this because I, I transitioned from being a tennis player to an endurance athlete. So the, the mode of training completely changes from going on the tennis court and doing all your drills and doing all the footwork drills and doing all the agility drills to all of a sudden you're training for running, for swimming, for biking. And for those sports, for the endurance sports, the racing sports, especially the long distance ones, there is a priority before winning, although winning is hopefully the end goal. The priority is finishing. You first train. Before you train to win, you train to finish the whole thing. When you train for a marathon, you train month after month after month to make sure that when you enter the race, you are going to finish all 26.2 miles. You can join a race even if you're not sure whether or not you're going to win. You can hope to win and still join, but you don't join a race if you're not absolutely sure you're going to finish. It's one thing to be flashy as a believer. The next new ministry. It's one thing to be fervent and energetic you see this with a lot of young guys. They're just excited to do the things that God want, wants them to do at an early age. Faithfulness, sticking to the course and sticking to the parameters of the course all the way through and not stopping until you get it done is a quality that's much, much harder to find because it takes an entire lifetime to prove it. When you look at, I mean, when you look at Jesus and he spent three years in ministry completing the work that the Father gave him to preach, to heal, to testify of the gospel, to point people to the kingdom of God. And at the very last leg, you see him emotionally struggling. He's at the garden. It's the last stretch. It's the last part it's the anchor of his race and he's struggling and all of a sudden he asks god if there's a way out that's the only time in the bible i've ever seen jesus ask god for a way out because in a race there's going to come a point especially in the last part where you're not going to want to do it and he's struggling he's crying he's praying he's sweating like drops of blood and then he's on the cross and he is able to utter with integrity, it is finished. In other words, I finished it. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. Like one of my seminary profs would always say, as your priority as a pastor, as a minister, as a Christian, it may look ugly, you may struggle, but you need to get the job God has entrusted a particular ministry to every person, to every church. He's entrusted one to me. He's entrusted one to you. He's entrusted one to Rod and his family. He's entrusted one to every church you've seen in the Bay Area. Every believer, every person who professes that Jesus Christ is Lord has received a task from God from an individual perspective and as a corporate perspective. And obviously it looks different for every person. It depends on your giftedness. Not everyone's gifted to be a pastor. Obviously, otherwise, 
Rod and his family would starve. Not everyone is, is, is entrusted to the, the same location. There are different local churches doing different things. It depends on your gender. It depends on your age. It depends on your marital status. Married people, single people, they have different tasks, different stewardships. It depends on your health, obviously. But this I know. I don't know you personally, obviously. I've never, I've only talked to a handful of you. But this I know, that if you're a believer, God has given you a task and it has something to do with the gospel and the great commission in some way, shape, or form and it's going to take you a lifetime to finish. It may have multiple parts, right? Multiple facets. Jesus' life had multiple facets. First, for 30 years, no preaching, no teaching. He was called to be a son, a carpenter. And then he was called to preach in Galilee first and then to Jerusalem and then he was called to die. Different chapters, different phases. Jesus was faithful in every single one. Same with Paul. First in this region, then in this region. And then finally, go to Jerusalem. Different stages depending on the season of life, but you have to finish it. You have to discern what it is first based on who you are, based on what God's placed in you, based on what you're convicted God wants you to do. And you can't leave it 80% completed because you didn't assign it to yourself. As a Christian, you're not autonomous. You're not self-employed. You know, when I applied for a job at a Christian school, which is where I teach, I didn't write my own job description. I wrote my own lesson plans and I made my own classroom management rules but that's all because I was given a particular job description and I had to give an account to the principal nicest lady but still my, my boss that I'm doing the work that was assigned to me and as a believer you were what does 1 Corinthians say you were bought with a price you were purified, Titus says, as a people of God's own possession. Ephesians, you were set apart for a good work. You were sanctified for a good work. You are alive, but you're not free, if that makes sense. Whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is your Lord, you're affirming that he not only saved you, but he's now directing you suffer as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, right? Look at this language. So be transformed in the way you consider your own life before God. Be transformed in your commitment, what you've committed to. Fulfill your ministry. Now, what is this ministry? And if you're not sure what it is, that's where the Bible comes into play. You can discern God's will for your life through the scriptures. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, right? For training in righteousness, Profitable to equip you for the good work that God set before you that you're supposed to walk in. And if you're still not sure, you attach yourself to a Bible-believing church where the pastor goes up and exposits this book from one cover to the other and gives you the entire counsel of God so you are not unsure of what God expects from you. Third area, and the last area, is in your conviction regarding the gospel message. 
Not just in your consideration, not just in your commitment, but now what do you do? What are you committed to? It's the conviction to further the gospel wherever you're at. When Paul says to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, there is the job description. What, what is your course, Paul? What task did God assign you to? Why are you going to Jerusalem? And Paul says, here's the job description. To testify to the gospel. I am an ambassador of the risen Savior. And I need to testify, in other words, to declare, to tell the truth, to bear witness that he is alive and that he is extending the grace of salvation to every person on the planet. And he's called me to deliver this message that there is forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all who do not place trust in themselves, but place their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what, all, that's what the apostles were doing in the, you know, in the life of this early church. They weren't building homes. They weren't trying to reconcile with other religions. They weren't building nice programs. They were testifying. They were going around telling the world that Jesus Christ is alive and telling rebels who hated God that God is, even as they are still enemies, God is extending grace that the Lord of the universe before whom they are guilty has made a way to eternal life by sending his own son to die on the cross who is now alive, who is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That is the gospel. When Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So when Paul here is saying, my job is to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That God in his grace is extending heaven to all those who are running to hell, who are on death row, if they repent and believe. Conviction is key. When we talk about conviction, there's a difference between emotion and ambition and conviction. A man of emotion says, I will do what I do because it feels good. The man of ambition says, I will do what I do because I want to succeed. They recently asked Michael Phelps, speaking of races, why he trains the way he does because he revealed that one of the things that his coach would make him do was to all out, without stopping, full blast, swim for 10,000 meters. It would take him about two and a half hours. I can swim for 20 minutes and feel tired. Two and a half hours, all out, at that speed. And then they asked him, why, why do you do that? And he said, because... I want to be the best. Ambition without limit. It's one thing to be an emotional believer. It's one thing to be an ambitious believer. But the man of conviction says, I do what I do 
because he told me so. And I don't have a choice. I love him, I believe in him, I trust him, and I will obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. There are a lot of godly, convicted leaders, and they're different from, they're different from the worldly ones. Worldly leaders, worldly pastors are hard workers. They're ambitious workers. But it's not, it's not for anyone else but them. They want to succeed. They, they want their church to grow. They, they want to look good, so they're passionate. But it's not out of a conviction. It's out of, I'm trying to reach something. As opposed to when you look at, when you look at someone like Paul and every godly leader who's followed in his steps, it's, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm preaching what I'm preaching, even if I'm losing the people around me, because that's the message that I was given. If you want to know what it feels like to preach, and, and think about this every time Rod delivers the word to you every Sunday morning, it's you're convicted that this particular text, God told you to explain in a way that makes sense to your congregation. And you are held to a standard of making sure you say it correctly. And if you don't, which is why it says, let not many of you be teachers, because you incur upon yourself a stricter judgment, lest you cause someone else to stumble. It's not so much that, it's not so much about going to church. It's about being the church. You're an identity. You are a royal priesthood, right? A holy nation, a chosen race, a people of God's own possession called to proclaim. Here's your job description as Gateway Bible Church. You are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why? Because at one point you weren't shown mercy, but now you are. You've experienced the grace of God, and as a job description, as a service, as a ministry, there is a world out there that does not know Christ. There are people out there who are on eternal death row, and your job is to tell them that there is an excellent God who loves you, before whom you're guilty, but who sent his son to die in your place. So now place your faith in him, obey him, trust him. The gospel was meant to impact and penetrate every people group, every culture, every nation, every tribe and tongue. Disciples are born through the gospel. They're grown through the gospel. They are glorified through the gospel. This is why, if you think about it, this is why the Tower of Babel happened. What was God doing from Genesis 1? How does this relate to this now? Tower of Babel, people want to be all together, going up. God says, no, I designed you to scatter because I, through that scattering and going to form every culture, tribe, and tongue, and I'm going to send my son to die on the cross and rise again to finish the work of salvation and I will send my Holy Spirit to take that message through the instruments known as people to bring the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue to make people from every tribe and tongue worshipers 
of Jesus Christ. Is this what American churches are honestly doing today? There was a, one of the teachers in my school, and I, go to a, I teach at a Christian school, said that it's been difficult for her to find a church that she wanted to commit to. And I asked, why? And she said, because every time I, I visit a church, it feels like a concert. There's a coffee bar. And she said, there's nothing against drinking coffee in church, obviously. That's my favorite part of church. <laughs> uh, especially when you're in ministry. You show up on Sunday morning after spending all night Saturday trying to prepare, and coffee's your favorite thing. Um, in seminary, they used to call it the Lazarus Cup. It raises you back to life so you can <laughs> preach. But you go into a church, and there's a coffee bar, there's, there's lights, there's a concert, and the pastor goes up and tells a story so that people can laugh, so that people who come for the first time are not going to want to leave. What Jesus did on the cross was a serious thing. Serious, serious thing. It is not a small issue. When the one who had eternal glory as the Son of God is incarnated into human flesh, walks with man, shares in the grief of man, shares in human weaknesses, it's amazing when you think that the God of the universe allowed himself to go hungry and sleepy. And when he is rejected from his hometown, when he is humiliated, when he is slandered, he's flogged, he's mocked, and he is nailed to a cross because you couldn't save yourself. And then three days later, the grave's empty because he overcame the power of death. That was not meant to be a theatrical show. That deserves more than that. A serious message has serious consequences. And serious consequences means that there is a serious commission to bring that message to the ends of the earth which it's so encouraging to know that there's a team in Bolivia right now from your church trying to do that. Because that serious commission falls on the hands of none other than the church, which is the universal body of Christ manifested in different local assemblies of which Gateway was a part of. Through your minute, well, what a privilege Fearful privilege, but a privilege nevertheless. Through your ministry, just maybe people might hear who don't know Christ, people might hear that there is a way to not be punished eternally for their sins. Through your ministry, through the good works that you walk in, Someone may get transformed to be zealous for good works. Through your ministry, someone can go from being a son of Satan 
to a child of God and grow up in that. If you, and it will cost you your life in some way, shape, or form. If you consider yourself and your life without respect in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ and obeying him, if you commit yourself to finishing this ministry and are absolutely convicted that the message that saved you is the message to which you were appointed, just maybe someone, someone would hear the gospel and be saved. Just think about this. We go through so many different ups and downs as believers on on this side of eternity. Oh, life is hard. Life is just rocky. Churches come and go. Churches split. Churches form. Believers get together. Believers split apart. Whoa, it's crazy. Church life is crazy. At the end of the day, on judgment day, when all is said and done, and everything in the past is just the past, and God is now making a verdict, and all of humanity is before God, and he is separating the sheep from the goats. I would hope that because of this church's faithfulness, that there may be a few, even a few, who don't get cast into the lake of fire because you were faithful to bring the message to them that saved you. Whether it be to your children at home, to people at work, in an event where you speak, to a friend, to someone. And even if it costs you your reputation, if it costs you your money, if it costs you your life, Why was Paul talking like this? He's not a maverick. He's just, he was just being a disciple. That's how Jesus thought. That's how Jesus' philosophy was when he was walking on planet Earth. Sent to serve, sent to save. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's what Jesus commanded from every disciple. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, here it is, the gospel, We'll save it. Paul, when he did go to Jerusalem and did get imprisoned for the last time and was about to die, writes to Timothy and says, you, do not not be ashamed. Join with me in suffering for the gospel because you are a bondservant of the Lord. Be sober-minded, endure hardship, You do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of the gospel and finish it all the way through because I, Paul, have finished the course. Oh, I love the part where he says that. (laughs) I've finished the course. I have kept the faith and waiting for me is the crown of righteousness which will be given to me and all those who love his appearing. Oh, Paul is no longer suffering in heaven. Timothy finished the course. And Paul told Timothy, as I'm telling you to suffer for the gospel, 
And as you are strong in the grace of God, I want you to make sure you entrust this kind of a ministry to faithful men who will then pass it down to others. And every faithful, godly minister ever since that day has considered their life without respect, has committed themselves to the course, and has testified of the gospel of the grace of God. Everyone, including your own pastor. No one is not allowed to suffer. But here's what I was starting to struggle with, and I'll end with this. I thought about this long and hard, reading through different scripture, and I came to the conclusion, after looking at 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, that not every believer will end up having finished their course. Every Christian will stand before God justified. Christ will be an advocate for your sins. Every believer will stand before God justified. But not every Christian will stand before God on that judgment day having fully carried out the ministry that God entrusted to them. Some will and some won't, which is why 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15 says this, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work, and if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward, and if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer a loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. God has been on a mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And it's been going on now for 2,000 years. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel message is being taken to the ends of the earth through this vehicle known as the local church. He has been in the business of transforming believers from everywhere. That's how I was saved. I grew up in the Philippines. I didn't know the gospel there. But this guy named Billy Graham came over, had, had one of his crusades. Someone got saved in that crusade, shared it with my uncle who brought it to my family, and my uncle suffered for doing that. But somehow the gospel from him got to my brother, which it wasn't supposed to get to, and somehow that leaked out to me, and it took 10 years, but it clicked when it came to college. People are being transformed now. God is not going to stop. Uh, I hope that for the rest of your lives, you'll be a part of this work. And when the day comes that you stand before God, not only will he say, you're fully justified, but he will say, oh, listen to this. Just imagine this being said to you. By Almighty God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, enter into the oh, enter into the joy of your master.
Will he take your work and burn it all up? Or will he take your work and say, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master. I pray that you as a church body individually and corporately would consider and discern what the will of God is in your life. That we would look hard and deep. And when Rod preaches, you go up to him and say, Rod, don't leave here until I'm absolutely clear what that word says about what I'm supposed to do. And that you will, with your full soul, give everything you can to complete it. Because you know who saved you, who sanctifies you, and who will be with you for the rest of eternity. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel. We're so thankful that though we deserve eternal punishment, that you saved us. And it's such a privilege to be entrusted with this ministry knowing that your Holy Spirit will empower us to do it. And I pray for these people, for this church, that they would be faithful. I pray for Rod that he would continue to exposit your word with all its clarity and all its purpose. And that your people here, who you have saved, would take the message, fulfill their ministry, and testify that you are the God who you are and that Christ did what he did for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.